The following is offered by Discerning Hearts, a 501 nonprofit Catholic apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation through the use of digital media. To download this selection, or to browse hundreds of other programs, or to contribute to our mission with a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, visit our website at discerninghearts.com. Ignatius Press and the Augustan Institute present The Formed Book Club. Catholic book lovers unpacking good books chapter by chapter. If you like us, please help us by subscribing and by reviewing us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might listen. And don't forget to sign up for weekly updates and study questions at formedbookclub.ignatius.com. Welcome to the Formed Book Club. We hope to conclude our discussion on the spirit of liturgy by Joseph Ratzinger. Uh, however, uh, we record these on Thursday afternoons. That's one of the two days a week when the entire Ignatius Press staff is here for Mass and lunch. We often have wonderful conversations, but of course, along with the conversation, uh, I make wine, as some people may know, and I now make bread as well. I've got perfected my recipe for sourdough bread, baguettes, and cheese. So the conversation they went quite a while was very interesting, but we consumed, I consumed a lot of bread, wine, and cheese, so... Uh, I don't consume any wine at lunch because otherwise I would be taking a nap right now. All right. Well, then, then we're going to let you take the major part of this part of the thing. So, Father, you, yes. can't absorb me. you can't absorb me by the Internet, but can I confess to being envious? <laughs> you may. Um, so I think that we left off at page 221. Yes, that's what I have. With the human voice, of which you're getting an example right now. <laughs> so, on the next page, middle, he says, one of the important results of the liturgical renewal after the Council of Vatican II is the fact that the people really do again respond in the acclamation and do not have to leave it to a representative that is a server. And so, it's not just the priest saying some things the altar service says somebody else, and the congregation listening, but the congregation actually participates in the responses. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's a great uh, – however, that was done before the council. It was called the Dialogue Mass, and that was actually promoted in 1958. We had it when I was in high school, and the congregation would say with the altar server all of the responses. Yeah, I would say as well, Father, that this is an example, I think, of what uh, Cardinal Ratzinger and Pope Benedict hoped for with the cross-fertilization, because when I go to traditional Mass at various places, the vast majority of times now, the congregation are actually in dialogue with with, with the priest during the Mass. It's not yes. just left. Yeah. Then on page uh, 223 slash 209, which is in my older volume, which doesn't contain all the front matter, which praises me. Uh, in addition to congregational singing, Christian liturgy is of its very nature, finds a suitable place for the choir. And for musical instruments too, which no purism about collective singing should be allowed to contest. The possibilities will, of course, always differ from place to place, but the church as a whole must, for the sake of God, strive for the best. For from the very nature of the liturgy, 
But in necessity comes a culture that becomes a standard for all secular culture. That very important because he's from Bavaria, and he's from a great, you know, Germanic musical tradition. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's good that people sing, but let's not exclude a choir or an orchestra or uh, you know instruments. And to strive for the best can be taken, I think, in two ways. I mean, there's, you know, you could argue, well, what's the best music in all of human history of all the world? That might be one answer. What's the best that this community is able Uh, to produce, right? So, for example, we used my husband and I, for a while, we were going to a mass that was predominantly Filipino here in San Francisco. We have a lot of Filipino Catholics. I think we were definitely in the minority of non-Filipinos in the congregation. And they had this highly trained Filipino choir singing in four-part harmony. And, but it was more the songs that they liked to sing and everything, but it was absolutely beautiful. And you felt as though you were in the presence of here is a community giving their best to the Lord. And I, you know, you just, you just want to be careful that we don't become too narrow and rigid about what we mean by the best. Um, yeah, no, I, I agree. I think you know it's about giving back to the giver of the gift, the fruits of the yes. giver. You basically, you, you do the best you can as as an act of homage, right? Yes. You don't treat, you don't treat the, the liturgy with contempt by not bothering. Right? Yes. Yes. Um, and I would, you know, put a footnote to that: the best you can, meaning you, not recorded music. Yes. Mass should be us participating. You know, not listening to some kind of a, you know, amplified musical system. And I will say, too, at these masses, not only was the choir, they were really fantastic. Not only were they singing, the whole congregation was singing because it was all singable music for the rest of us, too. And people were really singing their hearts out. It was just such a joy. Yeah. So that's, I mean, I think Ratzinger, again, has to balance it. We want to have congregational singing, people participating. We don't want to exclude Fine music and a beautiful choir, some of which can't be sung by the congregation. You know? Some of which can't be, yeah. And that leads into his next thought, next paragraph on that same page. We are realizing more and more clearly that silence is a part of the liturgy. And that was something with the old mass. It was almost all silence. <laughs> but uh, now we have hardly any silence. Mm-hmm. And actually, what? I'd yeah. rather I'd rather have silence than bad music. That's true. You bet. You bet. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, yeah, he talks about silence as well, about a positive stillness. In other words, it's not it's not a vacuum, right? The silence is when we can actually be in the presence of the Lord, uh, either in a holy silence, letting him come to us or speaking to him in silence. But it's not a vacuum. In other words, we're not twiddling our thumbs. I mean, it's, it makes a big point about this. It's, it's actually a... It's a valid participation. Silence is participation. Yes. Well, if, 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 if that is what you're doing and being quiet. But the point is, is that silence doesn't mean passivity. And this is also true with receptivity is not passivity. In order to receive a gift, and many gifts come to us actually in the silence, but that's because we are an active listener, an active receiver, Right. And we're actually giving in the act of receiving. And this is something that I think. And who are the living living icons of the fact that receiving is not passive? Mary. Women. Oh. Mary and women, yeah. 
Yeah, so. I mean, I, I mean, this is this is up to a point from the sublime to the core blimey. Um, but you know, for me, I feel some of the some of the best prayer I have is sitting out on the deck uh, sometime around sunset, watching the, the light change on the leaves, and not saying or thinking anything, but just being receptive to the beauty that God's given me in that moment. I mean, that to me is prayer. I'm lifting up my heart to God without yes. words, either even in my thoughts. Well, this is not one upmanship, but whenever I've taken pilgrimages, it's never planned because you want to be able to do whatever comes to your mind. And going through Italy one time, they had these brown signs, which are triangular. That always means historical something. We saw this brown sign. We turned off the road. It was a dirt road several miles up. What is this going to? An old monastery. We drove up. It was a Benedictine monastery, very small, but the big, about the size of a three-bedroom house uh, was I think made and built in the 10th century was abandoned, but it was, we went inside and it was so quiet. I mean, most of us don't have the possibility to experience completely quiet. It was so quiet that I could, I could hear my pulse in my, my, you know, I could, in my, my brain veins, you know, but it allowed me to pray, you know, so beautiful to have complete silence, you know, Anyway, that's just a little. Yeah, yeah. Another footnote. Uh, he says at the bottom of page uh, 223, before the new paragraph, one of man's deepest needs is making his presence felt, a need that is manifestly not being met in our present form of liturgy. So he, he's, he's criticizing here what's happened mm -hmm. with the liturgy. Meaning the lack of silence. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, the next page, I want to read this one because uh, this – Again, I always like it when someone like Ratzinger affirms my own views on things. <laughs> the pause for silence after the homily has not proved to be very satisfactory. It seems artificial, with the congregation just waiting for as long as the servant feels inclined to let it go on. My experience exactly when I'm not the celebrant. What is more... The homily often leaves questions and contradictions in people's minds rather than an invitation to meet the Lord. As a general rule, the homily should conclude with an encouragement to prayer, which would give some content to the brief pause. But even then, it remains just a pause in the liturgy, a pause, not something which the liturgy of silence can develop. More helpful and spiritually appropriate is the silence after communion. This, in all truth, is the moment for an interior conversation with the Lord who has given himself to us for that essential communicating, that entry into the process of communication, without which the external reception and sacrament becomes mere ritual and therefore mm -hmm. And so a lot of parishes have to worry about the parking problem. But you don't have to fill that time in with music or anything. Of Let people come back to their pews. Or let people prepare for communion in silence or with instrumental music that helps you to pray. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or even a communion hymn, like, you know, here's a perfect place for a beautiful polyphonic communion hymn, something I could not dream of singing myself. Yes. You know, and then that is a time for real meditation. And so, yeah. I'm going to page 226. Anything before that? Nope. nope. Ten lines down or so. And before I read this, a, a little preparation. When I was came to Ave Maria with you, Joseph, um, 
I told the students something which they didn't know. It's, it was true at that time. It's still true now. I said, when you come to Mass and come to communion, the church permits you to kneel if you wish, to stand if you wish, receive in the hand if you wish, receive on your tongue if you wish. It's your choice. As soon as they found that out, what happened? When I held the host saying, this is the Lamb of God who takes away this is the world, they all knelt. They wanted to kneel at that point. Here's what he says. The moment when the Lord comes down and transforms bread into wine to become his body and blood cannot fail to stun to the very core of their being those who participate in the Eucharist by faith and prayer. When this happens, we cannot do other mm -hmm. than fall to our knees and greet him. Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. And you know, the dark side of that, not the dark side of his words, which are, which are beautiful and sublime, is you have to question the depth of faith in the real presence of Christ and the Eucharist of those who decided that we didn't, we no longer needed to kneel. Um, what were they thinking and, and how could they really have a living relationship with the real presence of Christ and the Eucharist if that they, if they wanted to stop the kneeling at that point? It, to me, it, it baffles me. You know, uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm stunned in the silence by that, quite frankly. Well, it, you funny you've mentioned that because one of the bishops who very strongly tried to stop kneeling after the Agnus Day was Cardinal Mahoney down in Los Angeles. Yeah. And we have family down there and our kids went to school down there. So we were down there a lot during this period when people were actually being browbeaten into not kneeling after the Agnus Day and to prepare for communion. But I'm telling you, when I went down there to these masses, it was almost like a physical force was like, I'm sorry, folks, I'm going down. <laughs> but then what I did to not be, I didn't want to draw attention to myself, you know, like be the only person who was kneeling. So at the elevation, I knelt, I said, Lord, I'm not worthy. And then I stood again in order to not be, who's this oddball? But literally, it felt like a physical force pushing me down. I could not not kneel. I just well, I, I can just say that I'm obviously happy being more ostentatious than you because I found myself at a parish in Washington State where there were no kneelers at all. They had two big screens either side of the altar. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, obviously nobody was going to kneel at any point. And uh, for, for all the appropriate, I just knelt for the whole time. I thought I was the only person kneeling. I didn't care. Good for, <laughs> good for you. <laughs> oh, by the way, that's all come that that's all gone now. Yeah. Down in LA, everyone is kneeling. I don't know if there was ever any official reversal of this, but the people just weren't going to have it. And th there's there's grassroots talk about the census fidelium. Yeah. Right? That's the census fidelium. Yeah, I mean, you know, basically that 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 when you get to that stage where no one kneels for anything, people walk away or they kneel. Yep, <laughs> that's know, right. And a lot of people walked away, unfortunately. I mean, that's one of the reasons mass attendance has gone down, as they desacralized the whole thing. Yep. And people walked away, ready with their feet. Um, but uh, those, that are, those that have stayed and the converts are coming in and, and kneeling. We'll return to the Forum Book Club with Father Joseph Fessio, Vivian Dudreau, and Joseph Pierce in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, 
and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to the Formed Book Club with Father Joseph Fezio, Vivian Dudreau, and Joseph Pierce. That's right. It reminds me when you say walk away or kneel. When you go, as everyone should go in, on this continent, down to Mexico City to Our Lady Guadalupe, you'll see for a mile up to the Basilica, the pilgrims are on their knees, on their knees all the way, walking, you know, walking to the extent they can on their knees. Now, I don't go that far. But, I mean, that that shows you a sense of something holy that they want to reach. Mm-hmm. Now, that he next moves on to something which is more controversial. And I think he's probably right, but, it, you know, I, I'm not as enthusiastic about it as he is. Uh, bottom of page 228 slash 214. In 1978, to the annoyance of many liturgists, I said that in no sense does the whole canon always have to be said out loud. Next page, since the reform of the liturgy, an attempt has been made to meet the crisis by incessantly inventing new Eucharistic prayers. In the process, we have sunk farther and farther in banality. Multiplying words is no help. That is all to, so there's two things here. He's saying at some point, it's already have a silent canon. And why multiply Eucharistic prayers? Uh, later on, about a third down on the page, it is no accident that in Jerusalem from a very early time, Parts of the canon were prayed in silence, and in the West, the silent canon, overlaid in part with the meditative singing, became the norm. Skip to two lines down. It is It really is not true that reciting the Holy Eucharistic prayer out loud and without interruption, plural, is a prerequisite for the participation of everyone in the central life of the Mass. And finally, and this refers to something you mentioned, Eve, uh, Eva, 
uh, Vivian, ten li- eight lines up on the bottom, anyone who has experienced a church united in the silent praying of the canon will know what a really filled silence is. So I'm curious what you think about that, you two. Well, I'm the priest, so I get to say it no matter what. Right. But the question is, should you hear it at all times? Yeah, I mean, I I would say that yeah. So we our, our we go to both the Novus Ordo and the extraordinary, you know, the ordinary and extraordinary form of the Mass. Um, uh, in the extraordinary form, a low Mass sometimes you know, a lot of it's not is said silently by the priest. But the good thing about the rubrics is that yeah, you know, it's like a liturgical dance. The, you know, the movements of the priest. You know what part of the Mass he's at. You can be praying along without this without having to hear all of his words and i do like that holy silence i prefer a sung mass i prefer a nice long solemn mass with all the uh you know the trappings should we say but if i'm if there's a low mass a weekday mass for instance um and i don't have to hear everything the priest is saying i'm very happy to be there in silence and i can see what he's doing so i know where we are in the mass it's not as if i don't know what's going on because the, the whole point is he's moving and and making gestures and you know what's happening Well, I, you know, for me, any mass, my attitude is if Jesus shows up, so can I. And so whatever's going on, I adapt myself. And, but if I had my preference, I do like to hear. It helps me stay focused. It helps me stay attentive on the prayers. It helps me to join the prayers with the priest, my prayers to his, even if I'm not following along word for word certain words trigger certain things in my mind to remind me what I'm doing. I'm offering myself with Christ. I'm bringing to the father, everything I'm giving everything. And I need those verbal cues. I I, I agree with you, Joseph, that because of the bells and the gestures, sure. I know what's going just like when I go to a foreign country and it's a language I don't understand. And yet I know where I am in the mass and I'm there and I'm participating to the, but if I had my preference, I would hear it. And speaking of words, though, as you've raised that subject, how absolutely absurd that in an increasingly globalized culture where people are traveling all over the world all the time, we've got rid of the universal language. You, know, you, you could have gone to mass anywhere in the world and it was being said in Latin and you, 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 it would be the same. You'd feel completely at home. This is the universal mass from the universal church. And now you go somewhere and it's in a language you don't speak. And of course, yes, if you understand enough about the mass, you know where you are in the, in, in the scheme right. of things. But, but you know, here's where I give here's familiarity, which is not which I would say was not necessary. Well, here's where I really put my hand out on the table. I actually prefer hearing it in English. The whole yeah, mass. That's fine. That, that's I don't mind fine. the on you say the sanctus because I know word for word what that is in Latin, and it's fixed in right. my mind and in my memory. But if I had my preference, but like for example, Father Fessio, he says almost the whole mass in Latin, and we go to that on a you know regular basis. And sure, I can pray, and I do pray, whatever. But you asked me what my preference is. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we we yeah. we can we can we can absolutely agree to differ, and, and, and yeah. with no, no problem. And I would yeah. say that Chesterton wrote a wonderful essay defending Latin and the Mass, and, and the fact that it, for liturgy, a dead language is the one that's most alive. There's the paradox. He can feel that way. I can, and I can. Right. For me personally, I can't say for him or anybody else. I'm just telling. For me personally, I like hearing. The word of the Lord proclaimed in my language. And I, I can appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, but I want to take, again, a middle position in that if you do celebrate the canon in Latin, 
it does allow the people in the congregation either to pay careful attention or to treat it like silence. That is to say, I'm not going to pay attention to those words. I'm going to think about the Mass oh, as if it's silence. Well, let's be clear about something about I'm trying to reveal about my own weakness here. It's not as though I'm following. No, it's not as though I'm following every word. My mind wanders just as as easily as anyone else's can. But all it takes is one or two words to bring me back into focus, you know, to so and I'll just hear a word of something and it just helps me to pray. It's like it's like having a mooring line, you know, a boat. the, The anchor is down in the water, but the mooring line, the boat can actually go quite a ways away in any direction, right? Any, and all of a sudden it'll reach the end of that rope and the boat will just by, you know, start to end coming back toward the anchor. And that's and how I, my mind yeah, is at yeah, let me just Let me just give a different experience. And I know, I'm, I, again, this is not a question of disagreeing. We can all disagree. To, and by the way, I'm not setting policy for the church either. No, I, whatever no, no. they decide, who have the authority, fine no, with me. I'm again, just letting you know. Personally, because I don't speak Latin, because my Latin is appalling, um, the, what I do do when I arrive at Mass, I make a point of reading all of the prayers and, and the readings and everything in English so that when we come to, to it in the Mass, I can read the Latin with the English side by side. So I'm, 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 I'm sort of rereading it in English, sort of simultaneously is actually learning some Latin and following the words of the priest. So it's sort of, to me, it's multidimensional and, and goes much deeper. Uh, yes. This is personal. I mean, I, I know that's not going to be right. the same for everybody. And, you know, I'm sure that my own family doesn't necessarily do the, do things the way that I do. It's right, just pretty right. Personal. Well, I mean, I'm going to agree with you both and also get personal and say, you know, I say only the first canon when I'm celebrating Mass. Uh, it's not that long, three or four minutes, maybe five minutes, I don't know. But in the Mass, Christ is giving himself to us. Mm-hmm. Can't we, if we want to go to Mass regularly, learn 20 Latin sentences? I mean, is this really that difficult? It's still not your mother tongue. It's interesting when people start to get close to death. I know of a case because I got a phone call the other day to help find a priest for this woman. She's 100 years old. She's from Austria originally, spoke perfect English while she was living here. Guess what? Guess what tongue she's talking in now in German. And so I'm not saying, of course, I can learn Latin. And I've learned a lot of Latin. You asked me, I'm not even saying my way or the highway. I'm only saying, you ask yeah. me personally, well, I've, I've, what I've, helps me to pray? My mother tongue helps me to pray. I think you, what you've said is par excellence in your esprit de corps, uh, you know, and I would say sayonara. Sayonara? I'm at mass, aren't I? I'm, I'm saying no. I mean, I, to your argument, yeah, I mean, I'm saying that we can all learn certain phrases. And by the way, but, but Father, excuse me, I'm going to stand up for myself here. You asked me what my personal feeling was. You, it, it, This was not an argument. I'm not setting up an argument like my way is better than so. You asked me what my personal feeling was. I step out. I reveal my personal feeling. And now I'm being told that my argument doesn't hold water. It was never an <laughs> argument. Yeah. It was never an well, argument. It was simply well, like revealing well, my heart. It, 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 I will it, it, never do not that. A, it, it is <laughs> not an argument, but I do, I do feel I need to say something, just as a quick. Which you, which I you love them anyway. You, okay. you can ignore or treat with, with, with the contempt it might, might deserve. But, you know, you're talking about the mother tongue. You know, for me, I, 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 it, with reference to the liturgy, 
I, I could argue that familiarity breeds contempt. In other words, that there's, there's a vulgarity uh, in both senses of the word uh, in, in a living language, which either becomes archaic and you only speak in King James English, or you're using modern idioms which cheapen the liturgy. So there's a problem. You know, familiarity can breed contempt. So we, irrespective of whether that's what we're going to speak on our deathbed, uh, if you know, that it, I, I still think for the liturgy, there's, there's a different case to be made. I, I, I know. I'm not arguing with you. I, he asked a question about how I personally felt and experienced things, and I answered the I question. I know, but you gave a reason for your feeling that you understand the words better, right? And, and, that, and how that has an And I'm saying English language has words like esprit de corps, sayonara, uh, gesundheit. We 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 have had, we've adopted words in English language. Yeah. Why not adopt a few more like curiolation? Well, that part I told you from the beginning because I actually that now is deep in my psyche. I, the curiolation. I don't need to hear that in English. I know, but, but, but the saying, whole rest of it. Well, well, the whole rest of it. I mean, the whole rest of it is See, three now minutes, he's going to try to go like long. this to win, to make me feel bad that I won't go home tomorrow and memorize the canon in Latin. No, and that's fine. He can do that. I love him anyway. Familiarity, pretty crap. I've been working for this guy now for 30 years, and I do not hold him in contempt. Well, where Father, where Father Fezio is concerned, familiarity breeds contentment. That's what I say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I hope the people out there listening to this are scandalized by our um, silly. All right. So uh, that, that has to do with voice and silence, I think. Uh, now comes vestments. The first, this is on page 230. Uh, there's a paragraph there. For the churchful attire worn by the priest during the celebration of Holy Mass should first and foremost make clear that he is not there as a private person, as this or that man, but stands in the place of another, capital A, Christ. What is merely private, real individual, about him should disappear, make way for Christ. And in our retreat house, uh, our little chapel has the sacristy. It's like a closet right in the chapel itself on the side. So I'm investing. People were there in the pews. So especially when new people come or children, I explain to them. I say, look, I'm putting on the amice. What's that for? It's a protective hood. No distractions. I put on the alb. What's that for? I'm putting on Christ because that's my baptismal garment. I put on Christ. What's the cincture for? That's to strengthen me and gird my loins. That's confirmation. I'm putting on the stole. What's that for? It's, so it's ordained. I'm, I'm ordained. I'm now a minister. The chasm, what's that for? I'm putting on Christ. And I'm disappearing. And when I offer the sacrifice, you're not going to see me. And you shouldn't see me. You're going to see these vestments up there, which are actually sacramentally, you know, symbolic of the fact that I have put on Christ. So, again, when he said this, I clapped. I said, that, that's great. So beautiful. Uh, well, he says on the next page in the middle, the image of putting on Christ is, therefore, a dynamic image bearing on the transformation of man and the world, the new humanity. Vestments are a reminder of all this, of this transformation in Christ and of the new community that is supposed to arise from it. We're, we're about at half hour, but are we going to finish? Let's this? just finish because we don't have much more. Okay, let's finish. Well, if I don't say too much. Uh, well, and yours truly. Anything more before we get to matter on page 234? No, I, I had things highlighted in 232, but I think they ultimately just uh, reiterate what you just talked about. So um, I don't think we need to go there. 
All right. Matter, well, he talks about the sacramentals and the sacraments. Da da da. Oh, yeah. I don't have much to say about this. Uh, well, just on the very last page of the book, 238 slash 224, towards the top there, uh, the answer we gave there applies again here. In the interplay of culture and history, history has priority. God has acted in history and through history. So we have historic faith. Given the gifts of the earth, their significance, given, given the gifts of the earth, their significance, the elements become sacraments through connection with the unique history of God in relation to man and Jesus Christ. This kind of sums up a theme of his that cosmos and history belong together, but that history gives a meaning to cosmos. And so water, wine, oil, bread, uh, these are elements that come from matter, from the universe, from the cosmos, but they're given new meaning by the sacramental use of them. And therefore, the Catholic faith, the Catholic Church, the Catholic liturgy is always the integration of the whole of crea creation, all the cosmos, with unique history in which God has become part of it. And he's answering a question that I have myself have had. Well, bread and wine, for example. Guess what? They don't have bread and wine in the Amazon or in the Sahara or... Well, maybe it's the Sahara they do, but but the point is, is that these were from a particular place and a particular culture. And I always did wonder about this question, like when we evangelize and spread the church through the world, here we're bringing foodstuffs from the Mediterranean. And does that make sense to try to transplant that someplace else? And does that um, argue against in some way, the universality of Christianity, which, for example, when the Japanese uh, shoguns kicked the uh, Christians out, you know, their argument was this has no place in Japan. You know, we this is not this is from another culture. This is an alien culture. This will never be part of Japanese culture. Then, I mean, I, again, I'm agreeing with you that, uh, you know, so it I, raises a question. In my, in my past, you know, when I was a white supremacist, we would take Christianity seriously because uh, it was Jewish and came from Palestine, right? The, 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 the point is that if, you, if you're going to make an objection based upon a particularity, you're not understanding the incarnation, which has to happen in, in, in a particular time, in a particular place, and everything else, such as bread and wine, because they're the words used by the real Christ in a real place at a particular time. He talks about bread and wine. Therefore, this particular becomes universalized. And that's... Ratzinger's answer, and I'm just yeah. saying that he's answering a question that I myself had in encountering people from other and when cultures. You, when you were a child, there were people who wanted to have pizza and coke be the matter for mass because we want to reach young people, you know? Ugh, I hate coke. <laughs> so anyways, I was glad to see him answer that question because yeah. that's obviously a question that many people have had, especially when you're evangelizing and places where they don't have a Mediterranean culture, you're bringing it with you to make this point that you just made, yes. which is what he made. No, the, the choice of God, the scandal of particularity. There it is. Uh, is part of the faith. Amen. Amen. Well, Amen. this has been a marathon, but what an enjoyable one. Very good. So that concludes our long discussion, but fruitful for me and I hope for some of our listeners and viewers here of this wonderful book on the liturgy by Joseph Carlin Ratzinger. I believe this book will be a classic. I think it already is a classic. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to move on. Next session, 
to another one of the great communio theologians who was basically a mentor to Rassier, Father Henri de Dubac, the drama of humanism. So please read the front matter material up to and including chapter one on Feuerbach and Nietzsche, and we'll see you next session. God bless you. If you enjoyed this discussion, please help spread the word about the Forum Book Club by subscribing to the podcast and writing a review. You can sign up for weekly updates at formedbookclub.ignatius.com.